Welcome to Threshold Stories, crossing thresholds one story at a time. I'm your host, Jeff Gora. In this episode, we discuss sexual addiction. You are not at the fitness you should have, and you're not even the person who you should be, but you don't have anybody whom you can trust to help you get there. What you're saying is you need a coach, and I might be your coach. I provide both instruction and explanation to help you reach your goals to overcome mediocrity, and I'll give you feedback along the way like any other coach. Most important thing I do, though, is get you ready for a big event. You pick the event, and I will help you get ready for it. I'm not a fit for everybody, but the only way to find out is to have a first interview. Go to our website, thresholdacademy.com, and select Contact Us, and let's schedule the first interview. See if I can help you go beyond your threshold. So, Marty, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Episode man. number one for you. You shall be back, that is for sure. <laughs> Good. Good. The um, places I want to go with you are kind of twofold, and I really mm-hmm. don't need my glasses to explain this. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a place called Cahoots, mm-hmm. and I can't go there by myself. You have to go with somebody. <laughs> yeah, so, you have to be in Cahoots with somebody. That's right. correct, so I go there. And the other one is um, Sane. Mm. Let's go insane. Exactly. But, we can do that while we're in Cahoots. But you got to drive to get there. There's no airplane flights to Sane. Well, it's a small place. For me, insanity, I don't get driven. It's not a drive. It's a short putt. Is that it's right? a short putt, and I'm, in, I'm there. I'm there. So do you think you were born insane or you were made insane by life? <laughs> I don't know if I've ever been able to resolve that one. Right? Yeah. You know. it's, dividing, it's dividing by zero. Exactly. So the core of today's issue, parental discretion advised, mm. it is that thing that gets it's the pink elephant of modern society mm-hmm. it's not that modern of an issue as you know david struggled with this and mm-hmm. solomon struggled with this and lots of times their names get sprinkled throughout history without any reference to the fact that they were addicted to love in all the wrong mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. um welcome to the marty cocking story well i appreciate that i've been living that a long time yeah, yeah. so you say a long time let's go back to um iteration zero of sexuality with you what's your first memory of anything sexuality even if you didn't know that what that it was sex back then um well i I would say it had to be something that happened with my uncle um what was that well uh, my uncle came to live with us um when i was a child so give us a time frame here for the listener Uh, early early 60s 60s 60s, early early 1960s um Dad was uh, in the Air Force and got uh, sent to Vietnam uh, mm-hmm. to serve two full tours over there. And um, my uncle came to live with us. Who is us? Us is my family. Uh, I have three brothers. We're all very close uh, chronologically, all within five years of each other. Um, so we're, we're all right there. Boom, boom, boom. One, one, uh, pretty, pretty tight uh, family. Okay. And uh, so they thought it was a good idea to have another man in the house, which was my uncle. Um, at that time, we didn't know, and of course the term wasn't uh, widely known either. He's a pedophile. Mm-hmm. And uh, probably when I was seven, eight years old, he began to molest me. And uh, at the time, I had absolutely no idea <coughs> what that even was. I was very much struggling with that uh, so in what ways did, did he molest you? Um, he started out just basically fondling uh, fondling me. Mm-hmm. Then he would have me fondle him. Um, and, you know, as it progressed, he would do things that I thought were just absolutely gross. And, um, you know, he'd kiss me full on in the face and uh, a number of other things. And mm-hmm. um, the way that I, I had a, a later counselor put it, which struck me when, it, when <coughs> he actually said these words, mm-hmm. He said, uh, how, you know, you were repeatedly anally raped as an uh-huh. eight-year-old. Uh-huh. And I'd never really, until I heard him say those words, I didn't realize that's exactly what was happening. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, he sort of, he picked his times, he picked his places, um, and he did a lot of grooming activity. Um, what does that mean, grooming activity well, in your case? in my case, it was uh, paying attention to me. I'm the third of the four boys, and so you get the classic middle child syndrome mm-hmm. where you feel neglected. So he'd pay attention to me. He'd make sure that I was included in certain things. It made me feel special, and he knew my name. He'd pick me out of crowd. He'd take me to the ball games and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, those sorts of things, right. you know. You know, 
if you were if you happened to be home alone and you wanted to go out to play, well, he'd go out and play with you. Okay. Uh, no, <laughs> no double entendre intended uh, at that point, but you know those those sort of things. But he would also pick his times. It's you know he would uh, do things like uh, I need to go to the store for something. Who wants to ride to the store with me? Hey, Marty, you want to go to the store? Well, <laughs> as an eight or nine year old, I knew I would probably get a, a present for that. I'd get something for that, a, a piece of candy or a comic book or something mm-hmm. like that. But of course, we would always stop somewhere on the way, either to or back, and that's when the that's right. when. The, so, did your parents know about this? Not at all. Not, not, not at all. They didn't know anything about that. What about your brothers? Did they have a clue? Well, I, I've talked to them in later years. Um, if they did, uh, they weren't saying anything. Did you talk to anybody at school about it? No. How about friends? No. So this was pressure cooker with no outlet valve. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. So uh, not that we're going to fast forward to here in the, mm. in the timeline of things, but when did you finally find a place to go through the process of saying, I have been abused and I think it's still affecting me. Yeah, that's a, that's a dramatic little story there. I uh, had um, follow fast-forwarding. I was uh, 24, 23 mm-hmm. years old. I was married, had my first son and my only son, uh, Andy. He was an infant. Uh, at this point, I hadn't seen my uncle in probably, oh, probably six years, five years. He'd been out of out of our lives at least that long. Uh, I came home to Florida to visit mom and dad, uh-huh. and uh, dad had a uh, owned a, a rental park down there, and I was out in the back helping him fix a fence, and I heard a noise, and I turned around behind me, and there was my uncle uh-huh. carrying my son, and um, I don't know how he arrived there. I don't know what precipitated all of that. All I knew was there was that man carrying my son and I was just maybe a hair's breadth of just jumping on him and choking him to death or killing him, killing him at that point. Um, But somehow I uh, just dropped what I was doing, uh, which would be unusual, especially working with my dad. You had to pay attention with him. And uh, I grabbed my son I jumped in the little golf cart and went into the house uh, and told my mother at that point, I said, you always want you to hold Andy because if, uh, and if, if that man comes in here again, comes in here, I will kill him. And that's when I just told her outright that, that he abused me as a child. And if I ever see him touching my son again, I would kill him. So did your wife know at that point? No. Yeah, she hadn't told her either. No. No, I hadn't told any. That's the first time I told anybody uh, anything of that nature. So going, not that we're following a script. I haven't looked at it yet. Mm-hmm. So in our society today, there's the, the two commentaries that get all the attention on this issue, right? The mm-hmm. Roman Catholic Church and Boy Scouts of America. Mm-hmm. Um, when you hear their stories, you can empathize. Can Absolutely. Absolutely. No, no doubt. Um, so uh, it, and, and it sounds like you went a decade and a half without telling anybody. Oh, at pretty least, much, yeah, 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 pretty and much. And in that interim, you married and had children. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was there was a lot of things that happened in between there. Of course, when when uh, when uh, he was living at home with us, uh, nobody knew about that. But you know, eventually things change with your home. Uh, Dad was transferred out. We left Florida. We went to Alaska. We lost touch uh, with everybody in the family. When we came back, and this is a part that I don't think I've even ever told you about, but. When we got back, now I'm 15 years old, and um, I'm of still living at home. And my uncle comes again, and he finds a, an opportunity to meet me alone at the house. Now I didn't. I'm, I'm sure he planned this. I certainly didn't. I didn't know. I just turned around. There he was in my bedroom, and he basically attacked me at that point and pinned me to the floor. He's a big man, um, and and tried to molest me again. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to rekindle that relationship. And, I don't, you know, for me, it wasn't a relationship. And I felt at that point I was uh, in a fight for my life. And I was, I uh, became very physical. I told him, no, that's nothing going to happen again. I'm no longer eight years old, and this is not going to happen again. Mm-hmm. And um, he actually had me on, on the ground and um, trying to force himself on me. So, like, did he, did he have... 
Did, was he taking off his clothes and trying to take off yours? Um, yeah, yeah, he was. Um, although that wasn't a concern of mine. My concern at yours that was point, the survival, the survival mode. I was, uh, you know, fighting, hitting, punching, scratching, doing whatever I could to keep him off of me. So, I mean, in some some respect, probably not uh, in uh, hugely amount, huge amount, but. In some respect, I understand what it means for someone to be attacked sexually and raped, you know, because I, that was that was on its way to happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember kicking him in the face and pushing hard and punching as hard as I could and basically to no effect. And that's when a, somebody came home. It was uh, somebody opened the front door and allowed the door to slam. At that point, he jumped up, made himself presentable and left. And um, what a relief so- <laughs> for me. At 15, you still, even though you had just literally had a physical assault, not just an emotional one mm-hmm. or a spiritual one, and you still couldn't tell anybody. No. No. I cannot, I, I, as your friend, mm-hmm. I have a hard time with that. I'll give you this story, and you probably haven't heard this one either, but mm-hmm. my nephew was in um, prison for an extended period. Mm-hmm. I went to see him one time, and I did the generic, what's up, how are you, conversation that we do in the West here. Mm-hmm. It's an overwhelming question. Yeah, you know, asking somebody how are they? Right. You know, you're going all the way down. Well, genetically, I'm supposed to be, but I'm currently expressing it as a, and I don't really that. Mm-hmm. The whole identity is a variable thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he had just been, somebody had just tried to rape him mm. since I had last seen him. So it had been a single digit number of days, and he was debriefing with me uh, for the first time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was fidgety. He couldn't maintain eye contact. His voice was choking. You could see mm-hmm. him forming fists oh, yeah. while he was telling me this story. Mm-hmm. So his desire for vengeance, his desire to get even, prevent it from happening again, fill in the blank with whatever. It was evil. That's what mm-hmm. he decided. Mm-hmm. Um, but he too, I mean, he hasn't brought this story up with anybody that I've ever heard in the family and gone through it in its entirety. Who was it? What happened? How did they do it? Mm-hmm. And uh, for him, it's been... 20 something years. Uh, I can, I can absolutely identify with that. I think in, in my case, since the, uh, the abuse started so early, um, there's uh, I've since learned in the process of recovery that when you become sexual and when somebody abuses you in that sense, your, your emotional uh, development is somewhat stunted. So you can, I don't know if you can imagine, I, I live this. I, I certainly understand it, that, trying to go through life and deal with all that life has to offer with the emotional tools of an eight or nine year old. Um, it's pretty tough. You you don't know how to express things like that. Uh, there's a certain amount of shame involved with that. Sure. I was not, um, for the record that you are not still in that place mm -hmm. represents an answered prayer. Ah, well, yeah, uh, absolutely. I think, um, I think God, God, we met, that was it. That was the it was the shame painting. That was kind of uh, absolutely. And you know, even when we had met, I hadn't I hadn't expressed this much. It was in that process of the uh, of the recovery group that um, that this stuff comes out. Because, because it, of course, you know, when you um, when you go to those groups, it's it's very similar to Alcoholics Anonymous. So, you know, you tell your story. You know, uh-huh. what's your story? And we would have you know whole nights dedicated to just some one person telling them their story. Uh-huh. And um, and I was required to do that. And um, that's when some, the healing process begins. Mm-hmm. When you address the truth and bring it out there and put it out in stark terms, and then you can begin to deal with it. Isn't that. that kind of the core of the addiction process? It's this idea that we've done something, we don't know how we feel about it, but we know shame's a part of it. Mm-hmm. And so instead of shining light on it, we hide it. Mm-hmm. We get drunk and don't tell anybody. We take pain pills, but don't share with anybody. We hide them. Um, we go to pornography and don't tell mm-hmm. anybody that we've done it. Mm-hmm. We fill in the blank. It's that secrecy weapon that seems to empower addiction. Right. And, you know, as our friend uh, James used to say, you're as sick as your secrets. That's right. So, as long as you have your secrets. And we do that. We do that across the board. It's not just sexual sin. It's not just drugs. It's not just alcohol. It's it's all sorts of things. So how many how many hoarders have you seen, especially on TV, where they just let shut the door. Everything's fine. Shut the door. Yeah, don't, don't come in here. There's, there's you parallel. Know, you know, and the only way that that gets any help is when the doors are open, the shades are brought up, light is put in there, and not only does everybody see it, but now you see it. You know, you see it. Um, so there, let me take this to that spot between 15 years old 
and 23 years old. At this mm-hmm. point, you're full-blown puberty. Mm-hmm. You got married relatively early. I guess yeah. for the time you got married on a normal time. How old were you? I was a week after my 19th birthday. All right. So for that time period, not abnormal. Right. Pretty normal window. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you were experiencing those things that make puberty happen, the whole idea of hormonal bursts and, mm-hmm. and staring at women and all that, mm-hmm. um, did any of the uncle adver- adversity come into your mind throughout that? Like, did you feel like you had to like women or did you dislike women anyways, regardless of what you I liked women regardless, yeah. regardless. Um, so you never had that propensity toward homosexual behavior as a result? No. Because you know that's an outcome. That, mm-hmm. that Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I can tell you that um, the, the one thing uh, in that regard, following that same line of thought, that, that indelibly impressed upon me was I cannot force or feel like I'm forced or, or manipulate anybody into anything, um, I, uh, especially in a sexual way. So even if it's a role play where there's something uh, that's manipulative or forced, I'm out of there. Mm-hmm. I, I, can, I just cannot deal with that. Right. I feel like I was forced at, the, at a very young age, and then, of course, when I was attacked. Um, not, um, not something that I can deal with at all. You know, God doesn't, you know, categorize sins. Mm-hmm. Like there's a grade B and a C and a D and an mm-hmm. A and a mm-hmm. what have you. And we all know they're the same. But as I hear your commentary and I think about how our culture views sexual sins, especially against youth and how we seem to hyper-prioritize that, right? We have mm-hmm. a sexual offenders list. Mm-hmm. Well, if you steal a paperclip from work, it's still sinning. But we don't have a paperclip theft list. Our government maintains. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Uh, but I do think that there's some gradation, if you will, uh, based on the effect of what happens. So the effect of stealing a paper clip, probably not a whole lot. Mm-hmm. Similar to, you know, like we used to do when I was a kid, and we'd go back to Michigan, throwing a rock from the beach into Lake Superior. Well, yeah, we've moved a rock. Not the same thing. Right. You know, not the same thing as, you know, digging the canal and letting the water out. That's a different thing. Or, or what happened to Lake Erie? Yeah, it's a little bit different. You know, there's some effect there. Mm-hmm. Both are sins. Both are wrong. But, you know, I think with sexual sin, we don't understand the depth of that, the, the, the depth of the interconnection of sexuality to our emotions, to our spiritual being, even to our physical being. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like a direct line. I mean, you know, you plug that in, it's going to affect a lot of systems. To ask my, oh, obviously I can connect with that. I understand that. Mm-hmm. So let's back prior to the uncle days. Did you um, ever in your Q&A after you told your mom and eventually told your dad as well, did they ever unwind any stories with you about perhaps how their aunt and uncle might have been or how their grandparents or great uncles might have been? Like, Was um, there a history that predates your uncle that you ever learned about? On, uh, on my dad's side, not so much. There's not much, much there, Dad. There's a lot of dysfunction in his family as well. Um, the, 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 you, did, the, you did say he was a Detroit Tigers fan. My dad? Yeah. Oh, no, he hates baseball. Oh, oh yeah. My, on my mother's side, they're all Tigers fans. Uh, but so that's where the dysfunction is. That's, where the, <laughs> that's, exactly, that's exactly right. Um, and, and by the way, you do have to get north of Toledo before you start seeing Detroit hats. That's, that's the way that works. Um, anyhow, but on dad's side, there is, uh, there's a, some dysfunction. I don't know any of the details. I do know this, that my grandfather, I never knew him. He left about the time I was born, disappeared. And the story goes that he came home from work one day. They, oh, my grandparents owned a, a laundromat and uh, several laundromats. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came home from work one day with bullet holes in his car. And he was claiming that some hunters were hunting on and they accidentally shot his car. But the next day he disappeared and the lady that worked with them at the laundry, the dry cleaners disappeared as well, which we found out later they were uh, living together in Washington state. Um, And then we also found out later that the bullet holes were from the ex-husband. So there was something going on there, of Mm. course. Um, so there is something perhaps to that argument. There's this genetic disposition to not necessarily follow in lines with the. Oh yeah, I think everybody's every family. I think every family has secrets and stories just like this. Yeah. But on my mother's side, 
um, what my mother did after she found out. And I, I spent some time with mom explaining what happened, uh, but not in great detail. You know, she was there. She lived in the house. She understood the dynamic. She confided to me uh, during this process that one time during this time, I came to her as a child. I don't remember this. This is just what mom tells me happened, that uh, I came to her and said, I did not want my uncle to come in my room anymore. Mm -hmm. And she had no idea what that meant. And she said, just go play. No, you know, she She, she brushed it off. She brushed it off as a non-event. Uh, she said, but it bothered her, and she's remembered that event, of course, since uh, since then. Um, but after this came out, uh, the my uncle left the home, and uh, you know, with the uh, with with my son, the baby, um, mom corresponded with him, and I have in my possession the letters that went back and forth, um, and she confronted him. How could you do this? And mm-hmm. what he says in his letters is. He never he, well. He never addressed the situation with me or what he did, but what he said was, "Mom, you don't know what happened to me when I was a kid." So from those words, I surmised something mm-hmm. bad happened to him as well. So, so let's um claim that we have something there to think about, ponder on. You um are married. You have a child. Mm-hmm. And um, what, if any, impact did this have on your professional career? On my professional career, uh, at that point, I was studying for the ministry. Uh, I had uh, left home, uh, brought my wife and. Uh, you say left home? You moved. I moved to North Carolina. I moved to North Carolina. I was living on my own. Uh, I got married. Uh, then I le- uh, left Florida, sold everything, I had to Florida, went to school at Gardner Webb, uh, small college uh, west of mm-hmm. Charlotte. Um, and once they sucked every penny that I ever had or ever hoped to have out of me, then I was stuck in North Carolina. I've been here for 40 years now, so that's what will happen if you go to a small private school. Or just take everything. It just got worse. The yeah. loan issues. It's, yeah, everything. It's like a mortgage. It's like it's, his first mortgage for something. That's right. Of course, I mean, it was a, it was a great little town. We had four stoplights there. Um, well, they were all the same intersection. They just forced right. in different directions. Yeah. So is that four separate power bills as well? Yeah, I don't know about the power bills. <laughs> The, the east one was paid by one part of the county. <laughs> exactly. Right. Um, anyway, no, I was going to school. Uh, I, I labored, labored if it's the right word, lived under the impression and the uh, assumption that this ha- would have no effect. I'd put that behind me, blocked it out. So if you just, was, if the wound heals if you ignore it strategy. That's, yeah, that's the way I was living. What I didn't understand was is that something unaddressed like that just it stays there and festers. Um, one of the things that I'd taken away from that whole experience was that sex was not something you talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, wasn't something it wasn't respectable, and you also uh, in our family, you know, we didn't talk bad about our own relations. You know, you just didn't say anything bad about your grandmother, or you didn't say anything bad about your sister, or your brother, or your cousin, you know, they're all good folks, you know, if there was something bad about that, you just didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. So this was pretty bad. So we didn't say anything. Sure. Um, so, but you, um, you, I'm gonna, you chimed in something there that I'm sure the listeners are finding most fascinating that it just dropped and you just kept going with it. Um, right. Oh, by the way, I was studying to be in the ministry. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That's the disconnect. You know, it's almost like um, the 15th century monk kind of conversation. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Uh, How did you pick the ministry? Did you feel that it was your calling or was that your skill set or was it both? um, I think it turns out to be both. Uh, At the time, I didn't know if it was my skill set, but I certainly felt I had a calling. Um, Shortly after uh, coming back from Alaska and uh, moving back to Florida, um, I, without going into this, probably not time to go into it, I had an encounter with 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 Jesus uh, at a religious conversion mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, saving experience, I started going to a little Baptist church right across the across the way from us. Yep, and um, quickly found that I became a leader in that smaller community, and uh, started a youth group, uh, started a Bible study. We started several music uh, groups, and um, and and anyway, just developed a ministry within that small church, and. Um, I became the youth leader, 
of that. And then at one of those services, I, in Baptist parlance, uh, I felt the call to ministry. I felt like the Lord wanted me to prepare. Uh, I had a vision. I don't know if you would, you know, it's not like, the, you know, Ezekiel and the wheel within a wheel and the big birds and all that kind of thing. But I had a vision. That is uh, a good visual. Though. It is. Um, I had this vision of me standing in front of a number of people and teaching. And I had the scripture with me and I was speaking, expounding these scriptures to the people. And at that point, I felt like I needed to prepare to go to ministry. And um, at that point, I was engaged uh, uh, to my wife and uh, future wife. And so we talked about that. And um, within a year of our, our marriage, uh, I sold what we had in, in Florida, moved to uh, North Carolina to go to school at Gardner Webb and mm-hmm. to study for the ministry. And I became involved with a number of churches up there, mostly in western North Carolina, mm-hmm. uh, in the foothills, uh, Shelby. You had another First anomaly City. that mm-hmm. occurred in that, and that was the process that during that time, your then girlfriend, mm-hmm. who became your wife, she got pregnant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That. How did that resonate in your soul? Uh, it was uh, for me. It was a source of shame at that point that I, I, you know, I felt like I should be able to control that a little better than I had, mm-hmm. and uh, not um, not something I'm proud about, proud of, but. Uh, you said she chose to have an abortion. Well, she, I would say we chose with a lot of pressure on my part. Well, yeah, we, we know the modern argument, and she'd heard it as well. It's, it's you know, it's her body. It's ultimately on. She's got to sign documentation, not you. Right. Uh, yeah. Well, she did, but uh, for you think to, she ever disclosed that to the kids? Don't I don't know that. Yeah. I'm just saying this now. I'm wondering out loud if they're choice to throw you under the bus and leave you there would be the exact same response they would have if they, well, they learned that their mother had committed egregious sexual acts. Yeah. I, I know it's a speculatory what if, I don't know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have any idea at this point. All I know is, is that from, from virtually post-procedure hours, we didn't talk about it again. Right. We never talked about it uh, ever. She, she had the abortion. We went ahead and got married. This was before we were married. Uh, went ahead and got married as if it didn't happen and never spoke about it ever again. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and as, as far as I know, that's just still the way it is. So if this goes out, then... So I'm, I'm feeling there. heavy in my chest as you tell me that because mm-hmm. you're exposing that pattern that mm-hmm. exists throughout this. Right. Same, exactly the same. But I mean, trying to tie the laces to come back to you. You, you are a very high-functioning sexaholic sex addict. You succeeded professionally way above this, this you would normally put as a standard, running a large construction side of a, a company that focused mm-hmm. in a very specific niche market with lots of vendors and employees and budgets. Yeah, and yeah. Just, to, just to weave that thread so that you can follow what happened. Once I came and st- began to study for the ministry, Mm-hmm. In in uh, at Gardner Webb, I served several churches there. Was um, on staff at a number of churches uh, in and around uh, uh, you know Gardner Webb, basically in that, that geographical area. And um, but I found that I couldn't make a living doing that. Mm. At that point, I had um, in the early '80s had two children, uh, family to support, and um, most Baptist churches aren't well known for supporting their pastor, let alone the associate pastor. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just uh, couldn't make it financially. And uh, so I had to make a choice. So I need to stay in the ministry, go find my own church. Uh, but it, at that point, um, I had an offer from a friend of mine, a deacon at another church, um, who was starting his own business and wanted to know if I would help him. And uh, I basically resigned my position at the church and uh, went to into business with him um, running a construction company or an industrial uh, construction company that, that focused on put the petroleum industry. Yep. And we built How that. How long did you do that? Uh, 25 years. A quarter of a century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A Started in 1982. Uh, well, not 25, 23 years. I left in 2005. So, yeah. uh, so and you, you had in all, for all measures, the American dream. You yeah, absolutely. The wife and the children in the house and the vacations and the retirement mm-hmm. accounts and the savings mm-hmm. accounts and mm-hmm. uh, all of that. Yeah. 
the only the only regret about that is is that gasoline pipelines and and service stations not service stations but um, uh, distribution terminals that's where we work which is removed from the retail side um, they they don't all they're not all in one place they're distributed everywhere so there's a lot of travel involved so I wasn't home a lot so did your sexual addiction roar when you were away from home um, uh, my uh, wife at the uh, certainly think so, but no, it, it didn't. Um, there was the occasional uh, masturbatory exercises. There was, you know, you buy a magazine here or there um, to stimulate yourself. But um, other than that, no. Um, there was something about actually being involved, for me, being involved with a person that I couldn't do. Oh, I'm totally right there with you. I can't do that. Um, and I'll tell you a little Vignette. I don't even know if I told you this before, but I think I've said it in the meeting a time or two. And that is, at one point in my career, I, I had a store that uh, that we ran, and of course there were, we had video surveillance in there, and we had some ladies that were in the store, and I was in the back room, but I could sit where where my chair was, and I could see out the door to the, you know, the main part of the store, and there were the real live ladies right there, and I looked up and I could see them on the video. I found that I preferred looking at the video than I did the real person that was not more than five yards away. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, th- to move this back to that time frame, no, I didn't involve myself with any other person. But occasionally, two, three times a year maybe, I would um, uh, find a magazine or something of that nature, and I would go off on a, what would you, uh, maybe a binge, you know, maybe I'll call it a relate to that it would be a binge and then then i would put that away and then but for the most part for the 20 25 years not a real it didn't seem to be impacting my life any at all i was able to compartmentalize that and hold that at bay mm-hmm. and it, I, you know normal sex life with my wife although i would say it was certainly dysfunctional in the sense that mm-hmm. i couldn't verbalize this everything that's happening between you and me now, me, me being able to verbalize this is um, certainly post-recovery. I could not speak about sexual things, mm-hmm. um, even with my wife. I could have sex. Well, co- I mean, a couple of it. thoughtful comments. The idea that the virtual and the real are much different. Mm. You know, In my space, I only had one five or ten second dabble ever out in the real space, and that created great shame. Mm. That was awful. I mean, it, I, I made a major decision as a result of that. You know? Yeah. And um, that was bad. I sold my business. I said, I can't, I can't do this. It's right. crazy. Uh, the idea that somehow, some way that we can compartmentalize it and we keep it under control, that's what every right. addict does. You know, mm-hmm. I don't drink in the morning. I'm not like everybody else. Well, there's as many different kinds of sexual addictions as there are different kinds of sex. Mm-hmm. You know, it's you name it and we can figure out. So let's go right to the falling apart stage. How did your world, how did your marriage fall apart? How did that go down with your wife? Well, let me, let me back up a couple of years before that, maybe more than a couple of years before that, and, and let you know exactly what happened that put me on the, the spiral to that event. Fair. And that is, uh, of course, I'm old enough to live most of my life pre-internet. And um, so that's why I was saying magazines or uh, something mm-hmm. of that nature. That was the. Yeah, we just primary. lost half the audience. I, I, I get it. Right. I get it. But we're gonna we're gonna jump back into that world uh, very quickly, and that is when. Um, so when computers and the internet became a thing, it was it was a pain in the bazooka to to actually get online. It's not like today we just walk up with your with your Wi-Fi and say what's your Wi-Fi password and you're done. Uh, there was a string of characters you had to plug in. You had to set dip switches, which, you know, doesn't, that's not a person. That's just the way something you had to do. And then uh, get a dial up, get an extra, and, and it's a lot of stuff. And um, what happened to me was I finally got my computer set up. I got my modem set up. I got all the switches set the right place. I got everything communicate with each other. And I still couldn't get online. So I called the support line. So I'm on the phone with a support line. They're telling me, type this in, type that in. No, it might not a colon, make that a semicolon, put a dot here, put a backslash there. I'm doing all that. Push the button, and I'm on. I'm online. I said, all right, what do I do now? Green light. Green light. We're on. We're on. Uh, what do I do now? And the fa- these are the fateful words that, that uh, actually put my life on a downward trajectory. The The technician said, I tell everybody just to type in their name 
and see what happens. Marty cocking. Cocking. I CSA. wonder what happens. All right. You type cocking into a search search bar and see what happens. And pop-ups came up galore, discussion boards, pictures, videos, movies. And, and it was you like, were hooked. I was hooked. It was like smoking crack cocaine. And But given my pattern of hiding things, that immediately became a shameful thing. I think if I'd have made a different decision, if I'd have said, honey, look what happened here, my life would be completely different. Mm -hmm. But what I said was to myself, oh, my goodness, there's something I need to learn how to operate. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, you wanted and to control it. I wanted to control it, it right. You. Right. It's like sort of grabbing a tiger by the tail. Like, you know, let's see what we can do with this. Well, that just started a pattern of, of knowing that I didn't have to go sneak around or find an opportunity that would be rare and hard to sustain to being able to go downstairs or to the next room uh, and turn that computer on at any convenient time mm -hmm. and find the images that were like crack that cocaine worked, yep. that worked for me. Mm -hmm. And so that so you got involved in, the, you got quickly involved in the search, the unending nonstop. Exactly. Newest, next image, next video. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And finding which, which sites you liked, which whatever you like. And it, it just became a mania. So did you ever find yourself searching things that related to or that which might have been like your uncle's experience? Absolutely not. That repulsed me. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, no. I think that's a very interesting data point because the temptation is to conclude mm -hmm. if you were raised on rice and beans, you're going to eat rice and beans when you grow up. And right. you said, no, I'm actually going to have okra. Uh, yeah, I think, the, I think a better analogy for me at least was um, here's a new food on your plate. It's called cabbage. Eat that. Oh, I don't like it. You're going to eat it whether you like it or not. You know, you have to eat that or you can't get up. Well, you can make a choice to keep eating it until you like it. Or are you going to say, as soon as I get out of here, I'm never touching that stuff again? Mm -hmm. Well, that was the choice I made, uh, at least in that. I'm not ever going, no, I can't go there. I'm not going there. But that over there. That took oh, courage, by the way. Yeah. Oh. There's a whole lot of folks in the other homosexual community would not say anything what you just said right there. That's a courageous choice. I like it, Yeah, for the record. Don't know if that's courageous or not, but I'll take your assessment. It was you brave. Okay. How about that? Okay. Brave choice saying, that is so, not who I am. Mm -hmm. So the the trajectory of events from there as 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 it relates to the marriage was a began a pattern of secrecy and deception mm -hmm. although i was very careful to not actually tell a direct lie I, you know, somehow i thought that was the a better thing to do mm -hmm. so as if I could find myself at home or, or orchestrate events in such a place where there would no be nobody at home, and then I could access uh, uh, the computer uh, uninhibited, if you will, then I would do that um, to the detriment of other things uh, in my life. Sure. Um, so well, that, uh, that pattern of deception happened. And so talk then, about the I got caught, number one. Yeah. The first iteration of getting caught. The first iteration of getting caught was... Um, uh, basically, were, they were all the same. They were basically it's a replay. This is like push the replay button. It was exactly the same thing, where uh, I thought that somebody that I would be alone in the house, and then then my wife would come home, and come home early or come home at a time I wasn't expecting, mm -hmm. and while she never actually walked in on me actually uh, viewing porn, it was shortly thereafter, and it was like uh, I can't hide this. She could tell. She could tell mm -hmm. that something was happening here, and uh, and so that. You know, that threw up some barriers, along with the, the fact that now I see, as I look backward, what happened to me psychologically. You asked about that earlier, psychologically and spiritually and emotionally, is that it set up a barrier between me and her because I no longer looked at her the same way. Mm -hmm. And I looked at her as a, um, as something, as, as a person that I needed to manage because my addiction had to be fed as well. And so I had to manage what, how I communicated with her. How was she going to, how should I say something? Down to the inflection of your voice. How do you say something? How do you, how do you, you know, you know and, and that damaged so, the relationship. So, can, so this was, you, you never had the discussions, deep dive healing associated with the abortion. You no. You got the same equivalent powerful event going on 
this, the thing that she deemed, deemed was betrayal of marriage vows, right? That's what she Right, absolutely. She didn't discriminate between this and a prostitute in her that, mind. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was her response? Uh, one of revulsion, I would say. Did she, like, say something or throw something at you? Or Obviously, uh, she treated you differently. Well, some words were exchanged at some elevated volume. <laughs> That Say. makes her what I'm. What's the word for that? Normal. Exactly, and uh, and uh, she demanded basically that I get some help, mm-hmm. and uh, which I did. I went to several counseling. Uh, That's where we met. Yeah, well, I went to some counseling before that, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Barnabas you know, group, the Barnabas group, mm-hmm. uh, and some and uh, independent marriage counselors, which I found that they were absolutely ill-equipped for that at all. And I think the, um, the, I don't want to go into a conclusion of that. We're just telling a story at this point. I want to get to a, to a conclusion going. spot. We're going to do both. Yeah. We can go sequentially. But, uh, but you know, I, I found that I could then control this urge for a while, mm-hmm. and things would seem to get better. But, um, but I never felt like I was um, off of the spotlight, if you will. I still had to perform in a certain way. And um, I can only imagine what was going through her mind and how she was reacting to this because, in effect, what I had done was pull the rug out from under her. So she had been living with this man, the father of her children, that she would committed her entire life to, that she left her family for to, to be with me, right. moved to North Carolina, and everything was involved with our family and I basically pulled the rug out from under that. It's called a psychotic event. That which you thought was true ends up being untrue. And true. And then, but that doesn't just change your perception of the person. That changes your perception of your entire past. Which changes your perception of the entire future. Exactly. They're inseparable at that point. And it's, right. it's like a lightning bolt hit, and it's trickling through to the future. Right. And it just destroyed the past as well. So I didn't realize all that was happening at, the, at this point. But so Did she have anybody to talk to? Like, she sent you to counseling. Did she go to? Uh, not that I know of, mm-hmm. no. Uh, as far as our relationship was concerned, that was my issue, and I had to fix it. My wife had some wonderful women in her life mm-hmm. for whom I might just, we might be trading microphones. So she mm-hmm. had people she could mm-hmm. kind of divulge all in. Yeah. And we would hold her hand and cry with her. And, and all in her. all... Um, I think that's probably a better path. I think that if the people that she may have been involved with or that your wife was involved in, if they give her good advice and love her through then, then there's some hope of recovery and recovery of the relationship, which obviously has happened with you. Um, uh, with my case, having no help and her going through it herself, um, probably not the best. Uh, and I can also see where, had you got advice where you ought to leave that SOB, um, mm-hmm. he doesn't love you. Um, that's not good. I wouldn't. You know, he's cheating, yada, yada. Uh, I would have ended up in the same spot. So, related and unrelated, mm-hmm. there are, um, I read an article in Christianity Today, I believe, mm-hmm. about the proliferation of virtual porn. Mm-hmm. So, it's the concept that it's online, but instead of it being a living person, mm-hmm. I have no, ex- I don't know, what, I've not seen this, but uh, instead of being a living person, uh, I'm trying it's to stay an animated if you image, can imagine. Yeah. if you can believe that. So, you can't say I'm even cheating, because it's not really somebody. It's a... It's a, it's a graphical image. It's, not, it's like a machine. Are we actually defining the word is at this point? It sort of kind of does okay. to make, mandate okay. the definition of to be. Okay. Right? But the point is, is that seems to be proliferating for some people. It allows them to not feel as much shame hmm. as what the article said. Well. Can you believe it? Uh, I can believe the article said that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know Welcome if I can believe the veracity internet. of that. Well, that the word. internet said, therefore. Of course. Mm-hmm. Of course it is. Um, so this, so your events with um, Paula happened ten times, a hundred times. Uh, I think there were four separate events. Four separate events. Four separate events. And at some point, she decided, game set match. Exactly, and the the irony of that was um, <laughs> that I had already had be, begun um, recovery in earnest. Uh, it was taking place. Recovery was was taking hold. Was it perfect? No. Uh, obviously, <laughs> or there wouldn't have been that fourth event. Um, but it was getting better and better. And one of the things that um, I learned in recovery uh, was that I had to tell the truth. You mm-hmm. had to face the truth. 
And once that was out there on the table, then you could begin working on it. But as long as you shut the door, as long as you kept it in a, in a closet, kept it quiet, and pretended you didn't have a problem, it just stayed there and grew and became more powerful, and it, its tentacles got deeper and deeper into you. So I was beginning to speak more openly about it and my struggle with that. Mm-hmm. And and at one of our sessions, one of our counseling sessions, um, she basically told me that I had to stop this, and I had to to tell her that she, I would never do this again. And at that point, I'm still in the on the managing the situation. Mani- I mean, I'm managing it. I'm trying to get in recovery. I'm still trying to get a handle on it, and I could not honestly tell her that I would never look at pornography again. I couldn't do that mm-hmm. because I didn't know how that if I could do that. I had already been struggling for 10 years or so, however that long it was, um, with this. And I had now finally come to the realization that it controlled me more than I controlled it. Mm-hmm. So how, how could I tell somebody else that I, oh, yeah, it'll never happen again. I couldn't do that. And at that point, it was almost as if I could see the light go out in her eyes. Like if I couldn't give her that hope, then she had no hope at that point. And uh, and I do believe from that point forward, no matter what I said, no matter what I did, um, you know, you're as they say in poker, I was drawn dead. <laughs> Didn't matter what card I got, it was not going to help my hand. So her translation was, "He's not trying anymore. Or he's not willing to try hard enough." Uh, I think if if I were to take an honest look at it, it would be, she would say that I was not the man that she thought I was, and that this just proved that I was a deceiver and had always been a deceiver and it would never be any better. And and no matter what I said at that point, mm-hmm. if you're a liar, you're a liar, and you can't trust anything that you would say or do. And, and at that point, she decided she couldn't live with that. And I think at that point, too, she decided since I had been deceiving her, then it didn't really matter. She could deceive me as well. Right. And then there was this fateful day when I get a phone call and you are standing in the kitchen and you read me out loud a letter she had from a half-empty house. Yeah. The, uh, you know, we had, uh, I had not, no longer in the petroleum business. Uh, My children were grown, um, had children of their own and, um, we had started a business, the store, and as a matter of fact, you and I had become good friends at that point. We talked a lot. We were both in recovery. We're both, in, and one of the things you do in recovery, of course, is you is you make these phone calls and you talk and you check in. And um, you were the you were the person that didn't mind talking at any particular hour. Uh-huh. It was good, and so that was good for me because I was every time I closed. Being the president the, of a corporation, they can just take a call and not have to tell anybody. Exactly. So I, I had closed the store on that Saturday, and I was actually driving home, and I was talking to you. I was just doing my normal check-in thing. This is what happened today. This is what I was thinking. This is how I was tempted, yada, yada. And as, we, as I drove into the house, I pushed the button for the uh, uh, garage door to go up, and the garage door goes up, and I remember these words too. I said, Jeff, either I've been robbed or my wife has left. That's right. And uh, that's when I said, just hold on the line here. And I walked in. That's when I found the letter in the kitchen. And virtually half of everything in the house is gone. And there's a letter explaining that she's no longer going to be in my life. And, you know, she was contemplating the future and I wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I read the letter and that's, that's, that was the, the break of our marriage. Mm-hmm. And, that, and to that point, my, you know, my... Uh, that completely broke me. I would say that uh, it did. You know, did in that moment, um, the things that happened to me uh, and went through with that. I mean, I didn't know how to handle that at all either. Um, well, I mean, there's no class you take, right? There's no homework assignment you do that preps you for that, right? You get the lesson, then you get the then you get the test, then you get the lesson, right? And this was in just to give you some time frame. 2010, we had been married 34 years. I had two children that were. Uh, 30 and 29, both with children, both married. And um, I had every everything invested in my business, uh, taken everything that I own, put in the business. Of course, the world crashed in 2008, so I was losing that, and now I am lo- lost my marriage. Um, in the ensuing six months, I went from 235 pounds to 160 pounds. 
Um, and not because I was eating right. <laughs> I was just, it just nearly killed me. Mm-hmm. But um, so we, I wouldn't say it was an acrimonious divorce, but we didn't talk but one time after that. And there was never any agreement. We never came to an agreement on anything. The divorce just mainly happened and we split up. You know, she got what she got. She left with it. I was left with whatever was left. And, um, and, and then we just sort of uh, left at that. Mm-hmm. I haven't. I, th- I probably haven't spoken twenty words to her since. Right, and yet, mm-hmm. Jesus is bigger than all that, and life uh, moved on for you. Uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely. It was a, it was a struggle for for a very long time, and um, uh, of course, I'm being a Christian, having our experience, being a former minister. This struck at the very core of who I mm-hmm. thought I was and who I thought God was. Now, here's here's the opportunity. You know, God, here's your opportunity. You know, I am now Job. What are you going to do about this? <laughs> you've taken away my family. You've taken away my wealth. You've taken away my self-identity. I may as well uh, burn a campfire, sit in the ashes, and pour them on my head. That's the way I felt. Uh, you didn't use those words on the phone, but it was that message. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's what, uh, that's what happened. But um, I would say through the, through the recovery process and then being forced to look at my issues truthfully, because I couldn't run away from them anymore. Nope. They were all of my own making. Well, you could have, but it would have led to physical death at that point. Exactly. I'd be living under a bridge somewhere, yeah. and you know, and I'd be, you'd see me standing on the corner with a sign that says, God bless. Um, but through all of that, I can truthfully say that God did meet me there. Now, there were a lot of times when I would wander through that empty house, and I would have a conversation with God, and it would involve a lot of profanity and a lot of yelling, mostly me yelling at him <laughs> and um, <clears throat> explaining about how things ought to be different. Christians have such a hard time <coughs> having combat with God like it never happened in the Old Testament. No, right. What is up with that? Why do we feel like we have to be mm-hmm. so polite? And I have had more than one prayer start with the words, damn it. Mm-hmm. And they're sincere, like from my heart prayers. Right. Well, one of the things that I think we talked about a lot as I did this, because I vented a lot with you during this period, was, um, yeah, I don't care. This is what I would say. This is a quote, and I don't want you to uh, define the whole process by this, but this was part of the process. And that was, I would pray and yell at God, and I would say these words, I don't care if I was fucking the damn dog. I don't deserve this. Mm-hmm. That was my attitude at that point. Right. And... um so, listeners, he did actually say that, though. He didn't, he didn't bleep it out. <laughs> I didn't bleep it out. Um, but sometimes I think that's how frank we need to be with God. We need to tell him what we feel. One of those things, as a pastor, as a somebody who studied the Scripture for a long time, a lot longer than I've had the addiction, and that was that the, that the word Israel, Jacob and Israel, Jacob means deceiver. I can identify with that. But Israel, what God changed his name to, means one who wrestles with God. Mm-hmm. He wants us to wrestle with this. That's right. And to wrestle with him about this. And he didn't give me a definitive answer. He said, I'm going to be here with you. We're going to walk, go, go to this together. And as I worked through each one of these things, and as I made the commitment, at this point I made a commitment, and I talked with Jeff about this a number of times, and the, and the recovery group was that I commit now to be honest and open about all my dealings, no matter what and no matter where that leads me. Hence, that's why we're sitting here. You know, This gets on the, gets on the web, and now Marty's story is out there. That's right. There's, I'm no longer hiding anything, no, no deception. It's going to be out there. If it helps I mean, people, that came great. up this morning. I, my wife said, is Marty going to tell his story? And I say, actually, he's going to tell all of it. And it's inevitable that some of mine's going to be attached to it. Mm-hmm. What's, what's, she, what's she going to say at that point? Yeah. You know, it's, she, she gets it that this is a mission-critical thing for us to be normal. Absolutely. That's what, it, ab- that's what it Our takes. abnormality needs a light on it for us to be normal. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Uh, that's, that's a good way to put it. So, um, so in the years since then... Um, me and others have advised you that life will be good in the future. Mm-hmm. So now it's basically the end of 2019. We're in the last third of it. I'm nine years, almost nine years come, removed, from nine and a half years uh, from that, that fateful moment. Married to a woman that absolutely everybody loves. Absolutely. Which is pretty good. And I do too. You should, yeah. right? Yeah. 
you have you you have a wonderful paved future and you have a place where you can communicate Mm-hmm. just as you were architected to make. Absolutely. He, he gave me somebody that uh, if it's on her uh, mind, it comes out her mouth. Mm-hmm. And uh, not only for better or for worse. For better or for worse. And so you know, we, mm-hmm. we communicate very, very well. And she receives that communication the same way she gives it. So that's exactly what I need. Somebody that tells me, hey, don't do that. Or, hey, I like that. Or, you know, I came home today and somebody just honked their horn at me and I right. didn't like that. Well, okay. Well, now I know why you're feeling that way. That's good. It's, it's very good. So there's a belief in recovery that you'll neither shut the past nor wish to uh, forget the past nor wish to shut the door upon it. Mm-hmm. Yet in your past, you have this, you know, at least you speak of it, this anomaly in that your children, of course, only heard their mother's side. They don't know mm-hmm. anything. Maybe they're going to listen to this. They don't know what you went through, the family issues, it's just with that. And they drew a whole bunch of conclusions that included it's too big of a risk to have a relationship with my father, too big of a risk for my children to have a relationship mm-hmm. with my grandfather. I've certainly seen some of the efforts you put into that. Mm-hmm. Um, the act of praying about it and talking about that, it still has not yet given you that healing. Yet you keep hope. I, I do have hope that at some point there will be a restored relationship there. Um, I don't. Um, I don't blame my children. I mean, of course, they were home. They saw a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And you know, as it is with any family relationship, growing up, there's you know, you make mistakes. You're, you're not a perfect parent, and there are things when you aggravate your children and you don't do things exactly right. So, if those things are emphasized, I can certainly mm-hmm. uh, imagine why they would do that. Having said that, I desire a relationship with them. Sure. Um, I don't want to cover over anything. I don't want to. Um, Say that 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 was easy. That was all her mother, their, their mother's fault. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't want to go. I don't want to uh, put that there. But I do want to have a relationship. And sure. to um, the only thing I, I guess I would say about that is to to say that I would be dangerous around them, around children. Is so you know I'm in the midst of writing a book, and there was a component of my book um, when I had it in my um, original outline phase. Mm-hmm. That was a. Um, a retelling 2,000 years earlier mm-hmm. of um, you and the Joyce and the Andy story. I had pushed that into a Hebrew village in northern Israel. Oh, really? I did, and I yanked it from the book. I was realizing that the direction the book was going to go if I incorporated something like that was going to make it into a James Joyce-esque sort of length novel, and it ixnated it till future. But it's a resonating story that transcends time and history. Mm-hmm. One parent poisons the children against the other. It was the theme of... Right. Why we have family lawyers now dedicated to it to try to get in the middle and make sure that equitability mm-hmm. happens. But you are dealing with an emotional inequity. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a balance there between that. And you may not, maybe this podcast is the forum for them to actually hear that side of the story. But and the hope, the hope, how does that hope take place for you? When you say, I have hope they're going to, what does that hope look like? Well, the, the best way I know to do that is to sort of tell the story of what happened. So shortly after the separation mm-hmm. took place, there was a there was a process where they were pulling away from me, and I was trying to grab them and hold them, right. uh, hold that family or at least that part of the relationship together. And and the best analogy that I can come up with is it's sort of like having a three or a four year old at your house, and if you're playing with them. If you grab and hold them, they're going to try to pull away. But if you let them go away and um, and you still engage them, they will keep coming back. Mm-hmm. But the more you hold them, the more they want to get away. And if you hold them long enough, there becomes a point at which when you do let go, they're, they're getting away and they're not getting in your reach again. Mm-hmm. And I think I was either in danger or of that or I may have done that emotionally with them, trying to pull them in and to do what I could to sure. keep that relationship that they pulled away. And so at this point, I mean, for years, uh, I was. Did they think you were potentially a risk to their kids? Yes, absolutely. Um, So they just assumed that because it had happened generations before, it's certainly going to happen into the future unless they do something about it. I think they were certainly told that and certainly believe that. uh, that That's a form of insanity, by the way. Well, I will let I will let you make that that judgment. I'm the outsider here. I I won't make that make that judgment. I can tell you that. There's a narrative that says that that this is uh, generational 
and that you know that uh, pedophiles are repeat offenders and they're and they're if you were abused as a child, then the likelihood that you are an abuser is mm-hmm. up there. Um, and while that may be true, it's certainly not true in every case, and it's certainly not true in my case. Uh, I am I am not a, a risk to anybody um, sexually or with children in any in any in any, in any regard. But having said that, uh, as far as relationship with my children go, uh, all I can do right now is to let the Lord have that. Um, mm-hmm. I've done everything that I know to do, and I've realized that that whatever I can do is you know, as, not, not effective. As I was telling you this morning before breakfast when we were chatting, you know, I've always perceived God to need to use things like two-by-fours and sledgehammers to get your attention. <laughs> That's right. Whereas yeah. I've been just fine with Popsick. He's been able to get his message to me via popsicle sticks Mm -hmm. but then again i don't have the depth of the uh understanding of god's message and word like you do you're one of the more i'm not going to use the word elite but you're one of the more advanced people you think you would have dug as deep in this last decade into the new testament had you not gone through absolutely not no the i mean there's a there is a scripture and it says that god works all things for good uh to those that love him and were called according to his purpose that it doesn't say all things are good. And it doesn't say that God planned all these things. It says he works all things for good. Mm-hmm. And so how does that work out? So one of the ways that he, for me, worked out this for good was, is that when I came home to that empty house, um, there was now no, nothing left the, at that place for me to hinder me from either going full bore into my addiction or for doing what I should have been doing the entire time, which is working on the injury and the hurt that I had in myself and, and letting God repair me. And through friendships like you and my, yours and mine and through the recovery process, I found myself taking every way and the failure of the business. The business eventually failed. And so now I have no job. I've got no source of income had a broke, uh, you know, marriage that's going where the, you know, the economic world is going crazy. What, but if Bernie Sanders gets in, you're covered. Uh, that's right. I'll get I'll get the free income for life. That's, that's no right. Problem. Um, but at that point, I'm sitting at home with nothing to do. So, I made a decision earlier to be open and honest with all my stuff. And so, one of the things that that helped me with is is that I knew that if I went into my addiction, because now I had free and open access, unfettered, Mm -hmm. 24-7, that I would have to go to either do one of two things, either stop going to the recovery meeting, or when I did go to the recovery meeting, I'd have to tell them that's what I was doing. I couldn't do that. I could not look you in the face or any of those guys that were in that room and tell them, hey, you ought to recover, and oh, by the way, I spent seven days on watching porn this week. I, I just couldn't do that. So what I did was I spent that time working on my recovery, but also writing recovery material. And as you know, over the next three years, I developed a whole curriculum that we used in that group weekly. There'll be um, something at the end here for you guys to reach out to Marty if you're a church or this is connecting with you deeply and you'd like some more information about some of the curriculum that he's written. Yeah. Well, uh, virtually all of this is unpublished at this point, but I know that this works. I went through and culled out everything that I found useful and I saw working in people's lives, and I used mm-hmm. it, wrote up a whole years, two years worth of uh, a study with that. So let me stop you there. Mm-hmm. You, in the act of recovery, created things to help other people recover, and you created two years' worth of material. Yes, two years' worth of weekly study, so, such that if you wanted to have a study gr- or, or a recovery group. So I speculate that some professionals in this if they were given the task of, can you create two years' worth of curriculum to help people? They would say that's a great idea, but they just wouldn't get around to it. Hmm. Well, I have a round to it. You have a round to it? Well, look at this right here. Another round to it. There you go. To it. There it is. (laughs) So Um, Maybe that's why. Yeah, it's very, very, very possible, you know. So so I have that. Just think of this. You didn't get stoned (laughs) to death. So you got that going for you. That's good. Yeah, so, so much for grace. I'm glad for you have grace. Right. Uh, I did several other things. I, I've written a book on how to how to approach the scripture and uh, how to write that. I'm in the process of reviewing that now. And I'm, hopefully by the end of this week I'll have that done, and then we'll see if we can self-publish that. 
that so, little deal as well. Just so everybody knows, going forward, Marty's going to come back and he's going to talk about discrepant teachings within the scripture, things mm-hmm. that are things other people have gotten wrong and you probably heard in church and didn't know they were wrong. And he's going to deep dive with us back into the Greek and connect us with context and quality. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe the light will go on. Which is one of the more improbable things in, in the world you can think of that somebody can go to North Carolina, rural North Carolina at the corner of College and, and Main Street in Boiling Springs, North Carolina, which we affectionately call Boring Springs. Um, you know you're in a small town. When you make a beer run, you have to go to Gaffney. That's Leave the state. That's right. Leave the state to do that. But, uh, but I came out of there with a profound understanding of the original language, Greek, uh, of, the, uh, of the New Testament, and a smattering of Hebrew. My Hebrew sucks, mm-hmm. uh, so don't ask me a Hebrew question. It's about as bad as your hairdo. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> my, my hair has certainly made, it t- made a turn for the worse through this whole process. Mm-hmm. It's, it's turned gray, and then it turned white, and then it so turned loose. Give us a couple, and you can pick the def- definition of a couple here, of things that are better now. Things that are better now. Mm-hmm. Um, now meaning... Post recovery, I say post recovery. Recovery never ends, but right, yeah, you're, you're remarried, right? You have a new life that includes complete and total openness. The 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 things that are better are is, is I don't I don't go to sleep at night wondering if somebody's going to discover something that I did or didn't mm. do. I can go right to bed. I've, I say everything that I need to say. Um, that has given me a level of peace that uh, is beyond anything I could ever think of. I uh, also have a much better understanding of who I am as a person and how I got here. It also gives me a better understanding of virtually every other person in the world. Of course, I know your story. We've been in recovery together for well, a better part of 12 years, 13 years in that na- neighborhood. Um, but that every person has a story with good parts and bad parts. And so when I look at them, I no longer think about what they say, how they say it, what their background is, or what their theology is. They're a person that God loves that's got good things, it's got bad things. Perhaps I can help them, perhaps they can help me. But my, it's an honest opinion, it's a more sober opinion of other folks. A lot less judgmental, a lot less judgmental. One of my intentions here with this conversation with you is, for all of us to view those in the pulpit a wee bit differently than we currently do. We have this references in the Bible that's saying the people in that role are held to a higher standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but they still are human, and they still fall just as low as the rest of us. Mm-hmm. It's not like that statement that they're held to a higher standard means they actually are mm-hmm. at a higher. They're just held to a higher standard. And um, you know, maybe your pastor is embezzling money, or he's got lustful thoughts that he's never communicated, or is struggling with overeating and is trying to convince everybody else that they're supposed to honor the temple. Right. Um, um, here's the thing. You asked me about what how my life is different right now. Please. Now I understand that that is virtually certain of every pastor. It's virtually certain of every Sunday school teacher, of every person who goes to church, every person who doesn't go to church, every person that has an encounter with Christ, every person that hasn't has an encounter with Christ. Everything you just described there or something like that is in every person's life. So they're there. Let's do it again. All right. It's been incredible having you on this podcast today. Because of your passion and lessons in overcoming adversity, we're all better off from the time we've spent with you. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me directly. You can find me on LinkedIn or on my Facebook page at Jeff Gore of Team USA. Thanks for listening to this chapter of Threshold Stories, Crossing Thresholds, One Story at a Time. Be ready to cross more thresholds with me in two weeks.